Revelation chapter 3. Today we come to the sixth of the seven churches in Asia, the church of Philadelphia. Of the letters written to the seven churches, only two do not have anything negative to say about the church. Only two do not leave any instructions regarding correction. The first was Smyrna. Philadelphia is the second. And after hearing about all the things that are wrong with the churches, it is encouraging uh, to hear what is right. Not that everything we've studied thus far has been negative, uh, but to see a church that is doing what it should. Philadelphia was located about 20, uh, 28 miles southeast of Sardis. And as a city, it was relatively new. It was founded around 140 B.C. by a king, uh, Atalus II, who had the nickname Philadelphus because of his loyalty to his brother. Uh, Philadelphia is actually two words in Greek, uh, to love, brother, and so it, um, even today, Philadelphia in Pennsylvania is referred to as the city of brotherly love, uh, and Atalus Philadelphus was someone who was known for his loyalty to his brother. And so the city is named after his nickname, if you wish, Philadelphia. Even though the city was new, it seems that there had been settlements there from ancient times. It was strategically located, and as they tell you in real estate, it's the three important things are location, location, and location. Uh, it stood where three different kingdoms came together. Um, it was a border town. Most importantly, it was the gateway to the east, the most important highway that ran from Europe uh, through uh, Asia Minor into the east ran through Philadelphia. Philadelphia was built as a missionary city. That is to say, it was sort of an outpost, and one of its responsibilities, one of the reasons that Atullus actually built it, was so that this settlement could convey to the pagan people that lived around it, particularly the Phrygians, uh, the Greek language, the Greek way of life, Greek civilization. Sardis had done this very successfully with the kingdom of Lydia. Philadelphia was not so successful uh, with Phrygia. In terms of its economy, uh, Philadelphia was located on what was known as the Burnt Plain. It was the edge of a volcanic area. As a result, the soil was very fertile, and this, this brought about two results. First of all, great prosperity. It was known for its vineyards because of the soil type. Uh, we have great vineyards and uh, vintages that come out of that region. It also was known for its hot springs and was a center of medicinal baths. But there's a downside. That is, when you live near a volcano, uh, you have a lot of earthquakes. In 17 AD, as was the case with Sardis, it was destroyed by a, a horrible earthquake. As was with Sardis, Tiberius exempted them from taxes and the city was rebuilt. And in gratitude, they renamed the city, Philadelphia, they renamed it Neo-Caesarea, that is the new town of Caesar. 
later on, after this was written, after the book of Revelation was written, Vespasian changed the name to Flavia, his family name. But Philadelphia stuck. No matter how many times they changed the name, everyone thought of it as Philadelphia. Because of the earthquakes, people lived a very unsettled life. But there was sort of a rhythm. There would be tremors and everyone would run out of the city, out into the countryside. Things would calm down and then they would come back into the city. What about religion? Well, one would think that Caesar worship would be big here, but it really wasn't. Philadelphia was sort of, well, it had the, the nickname a little Athens. Every kind of religion was found there and there were temples to all the various gods. Uh, Dionysius, the god of wine, obviously was their favorite god because of the vintages, because of the vineyards. Uh, but it was just a city filled with temples. Now let's now that we know something about Philadelphia, let's read the passage here. Uh, beginning with verse number seven. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole earth to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus, as he speaks to the church in Philadelphia, identifies himself in three ways. First of all, he is the one who is holy and true. I think by mentioning that he is holy, it indicates that Jesus is in fact God. We read in Isaiah chapter 40, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. God is holy, and Jesus, by referring to himself as holy, points out that he is God. He is holy and true. And in Greek, there are two words, at least two words, which can be translated in English as true. One is true as opposed to false. It's sort of a true and false test. One is true, one, you know, or false. Um, this is not the word that John uses here. It is the other word, and it's one of his favorite words. It means genuine or real. So Jesus is saying that he is God and that he is genuine. He is true. He is real. By the way, John uses this word 22 times in his writings, particularly in the Gospel of John. It speaks of the true vine, the true light that lights the world, uh, the true bread, the only true God, we read in John 17. So he is holy, he is true, he holds the key of David. Now, this may seem a bit strange and out of place, but I think that's because we fail to appreciate the Old Testament. We may fail to understand what it's meant in this context. 
key is symbolic of authority and power. The key of David, there, uh, it means that Jesus is identified with the rule and the throne. He is the promised seed of David. At Christmas time, we are fond of reading a passage from Isaiah chapter 9. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. But do you remember that part of that passage says, He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. That is to say, Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the descendant of David. He holds the key of David. He is the Messiah. And what this means is spelled out specifically, directly, that he will open a door and no one can shut it, or he will shut it and no one can open it. Indirectly, I think he is referred to as having the key of David because of the Jews, those who belong to the synagogue of Satan. We will see that in a bit. The third way he identifies himself, I've just mentioned, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. If one has the key, one can open the door, or one can shut the door and lock it. But I think what is intended here is much more than simply opening or closing a door. It is the authority and the power that one has to open and shut a door. So that when he opens the door, no one can shut it. And when he shuts it, no one can open it. He has unchallengeable authority. One could say that he alone has the key of David. By the way, we saw in chapter 1, as John has his vision of the Son of Man, that the Son of Man has authority over death and the grave. But I think something else is intended here. The story is told in Isaiah chapter 22 of a steward of the king who was not faithful. He was a false and, well, an unjust steward. His name was Shebna. And God says he is to be removed. We read, I will depose you from your office and you will be ousted from your position. In other words, you're out of here. I'm going to replace you with someone who is faithful. And that man was Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. And a part of what God says to Eliakim of Hilkiah I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. This is the language that Jesus chooses to use to identify himself. He is, if you wish, the steward over God's house, and he is the one who has the authority. He is the one who can open the door and shut the door. I think... It's also important to remember that story because you have the false steward and you have the true steward. And in this particular context, the false steward refers to the Jews who belong to the synagogue of Satan. The true steward refers to those who are the people of God, the church of Philadelphia. In verse 8, we read about the church in Philadelphia. I know your deeds. Jesus is aware of the situation in Philadelphia. He knows what the church has been doing. See, I have set before you an open door that no one can shut. Well, this we would expect because this is tied to how Jesus identified himself. Now, generally speaking, if you know the New Testament, whenever we hear the expression an open door, we think of the door of opportunity, that Jesus opens the door of opportunity. In 1 Corinthians 16, we just finished 1 Corinthians. At the end, uh, Paul is talking about his plans, that he plans to come and visit the Corinthians. And he says, 
um, you know, that he's going to stay a bit while longer in Ephesus because a great door for effective work has opened to me. In other words, I have an open door and, and I've got work to do. There's a great opportunity here. In 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul discusses why he was late in getting to Corinth, that he stopped in Troas. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, and then he goes on to say, I still had no peace of mind. In other words, Christ opened the door of opportunity and things were still not right. And then in Colossians, Paul writes to the believers in Colossae, pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. And so whenever we hear the phrase an open door, we think of, oh, this is an opportunity to witness, to preach, to evangelize, to do the work of sharing the gospel. But I don't think that that is the primary intent here, or the primary focus. Then what could the open door be? Well, I would suggest to you that it is the open door into the kingdom of God. That is, it is the door of salvation. And Christ has opened it for the church of Philadelphia. It cannot be shut against them, even though those who belong to the synagogue say, no, no, you guys aren't actually true. You don't belong to Israel. You don't belong to God. You don't worship the true God. We do. Jesus says, I have the key. I open the door. And if I open it, no one can shut it. If I let you into the kingdom of God, no one can shut the door and keep you out. By the way, we find a similar reference to this in Acts chapter 14, when Paul and Barnabas return to Antioch after their first missionary journey. We read, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Here Christ says to the church in Philadelphia, listen, I have opened the door. I have provided salvation for you. No one can shut it. I have opened the door for you. By the way, when we get done with the seven churches, next week we will look at the seventh church, the church of Laodicea. The very first thing we read after the seven churches is found in chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. It is the open door. It is the door of salvation. I think there is a bit more to this. I, I've been talking about the primary meaning. I think there is also a secondary intent, but we will get to that in a few minutes. Jesus continues and he says to the church in Philadelphia, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The church in Philadelphia and the church in Smyrna, I think, had a lot in common. First of all, in both churches, they faced external opposition from the Jewish community in both places referred to as the synagogue of Satan. Instead of embracing Jesus as the Messiah, as the son of David, the one who has the key of David, they reject him. And therefore, they belong to the synagogue of Satan. Both churches, well, the church in Smyrna is described as being poor. I find it interesting that all the other letters, the six letters, we find the statement, I know your deeds. Not to the church in Smyrna. Instead, we read, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Here, of the church in Philadelphia, Jesus says, I know that you have little strength. Now, what this means, I think, in, in many ways, we can only speculate. Um, 
Perhaps it was a small congregation. That is possible. Perhaps economically they were not very strong. Politically they didn't have any strength. Maybe they were not flashy uh, like the church in Sardis or the church in Laodicea. Whatever their strength was, or why, whatever it was that caused them to have little strength, the point is clear. Jesus is the only one who has the key. And he has opened the door for the church in Philadelphia. People might say, well, it's just a handful of Christians there, or a bunch of poor Christians there, or you know, they really are not connected politically. Jesus says, I have opened the door for you. And so their little strength uh, really should, will not keep them out of the kingdom of heaven because Christ has opened the door. You know, in some ways it always seems easier to keep the gospel when you have company. The idea of strength in numbers really seems to ring true. But the church in Philadelphia did not have strength, and yet they remained true. This in spite of the opposition from the Jewish community. And in verses 9 and 10, this opposition is spelled out. Um, as was the case in Smyrna, it is the Jewish community. They are identified by Jesus as the synagogue of Satan, those who claim to be Jews. But interesting enough, this is not the final word. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, we know from Paul's writing to the Philippians that there is a day coming at the end of time when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's not what Jesus is speaking of here. Here we find, I think, the secondary sense of the open door. It seems that Jesus would cause something among the Jews in Philadelphia to see the truth of the gospel that the church in Philadelphia holds to, that they, in fact, are the people of God. And they would then come and bow down and acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. The language that we find here is from Isaiah chapter 60. The sons of your oppressors will come bowing down before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord Zion, the Holy One of Israel. And here we find the tables turned somewhat. There in Isaiah, it would seem that Isaiah is talking about in a future time, the Gentiles would bow down to the Jews. And now Jesus talks about the Jews bowing down to the Gentiles. I think we've missed the point in both cases. It is the case of those who are not God's people acknowledging those who are God's people and coming to the truth of the gospel. By the way, Paul saw his ministry in precisely this light, that he went to the Gentiles, he said, in order to provoke the Jews, because the Jews were very, very complacent. They were the Jews, the chosen people. And now Paul goes to the Gentiles and the Gentiles are converted and God is blessing the Gentiles and working among the Gentiles and the Jews are upset. What? What? What is this? We, only we can have the true God. Only we can be the chosen people of God. And Paul said, no. God has also chosen people among the Gentiles. And he hoped in some way to provoke the Jews to faith in Christ. So the church in Philadelphia now has an open door, or will have an open door of opportunity. That Christ will open the door for them to preach the gospel to the Jews, and they will come to faith in Christ. 
In the meantime, those who are God's people have kept his word and he will keep them. If you look at verse number nine, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole earth to test those who live on the earth. Jesus will reciprocate, if you wish, the the Philadelphians keeping. They have kept the faith. He will keep them. He will keep them from the hour of trial. What does this mean? Well, at least three things stand out. First of all, it's brevity. As we will go through the rest of the book of Revelation, you will see that in comparison to other times, this is a very, very short period of time. The time frame is very short. Its targets are those who dwell on the earth. And I would think, again, when we go through Revelation, you will see this refers to those who are the enemies of God. Those who murder the martyrs, who worship the beast, who get drunk on the harlot's wine. Specifically, I believe this phrase is used to refer to apostate Jews, those who have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Just a side note. In the Old Testament, when it was translated into Greek, this phrase of those who dwell on the earth, those who live on the earth, is used to refer to rebellious Israel. Whenever the prophets write about Israel, they have left God, they're worshipping false gods, they are referred to as those who dwell on the earth. And I think the hour that is being spoken of here is the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Within five years or less after John writes these words, the heart, the center of the Jewish people, Jerusalem, the temple, will no longer exist. That which gave them identity will be taken away. But God would preserve his people during that time. The third thing is the restraint. God would keep his people during the time of this trial. And I think what is intended is not, oh, don't worry, you guys aren't going to suffer any, but rather that he would keep them from falling away from the faith. I think the temptation is, due to the various teachings and, let's face it, the human desire to avoid suffering, to think in terms of being sheltered from suffering. When it says, when Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial, our first instinct is to say, oh, they're not going to be touched by this, they're not going to suffer, everything is going to be fine for them. But I don't think that that is what is intended. We should not assume that Jesus will keep them from this trial by somehow removing them from the scene or shielding them from pain. Um, Jesus, when he prayed in John 17, he prayed for his people. He said, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. See, if we had our way, Jesus keeping us would mean keeping us from any type of pain or suffering, any type of sorrow. When Jesus talks about keeping his people, he means keeping us from the evil one, keeping us from falling away from the faith. Whatever the great trial involves, the church in Philadelphia knows that Jesus will keep them, that no one can take them from the Father's hand, that nothing can separate them from the love of God. I think that most of us think that suffering is the worst thing that can happen to us. Whether it be persecution, you know, being tortured for the faith, 
or simply the sorrows that come into our lives. But there's something far, far worse than that. It is the fact that we might leave the Christian faith. I think it is only our own arrogance and our own sense of self-sufficiency which deludes us into thinking that could never happen to us. If I were to ask each of you today privately, do you think you will ever leave the Christian faith? I think most of us would say, well, no, of course not. Do you think you could ever leave the Christian faith? Well, no, I would never do that. I think we fail to recognize the sinfulness of our own hearts. We sing the words in the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But I wonder if we really believe that. I think we feel very self-sufficient. I go to church every Sunday. I'm part of the church on Melrose. For myself, I'm the pastor. How could I ever leave the Christian faith? Apart from the grace of God, we absolutely could in a moment. And if we don't understand that, then the promise of Christ to keep the church in Philadelphia, it's not a big deal. But if we understand that we all have the potential to leave the Christian faith, to hear Jesus say, I will keep you, are among the most wonderful words that we can hear from him. In verses 11 and 12, we have the promises that Jesus makes to the church in Philadelphia. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one may take your crown. As we've seen, uh, this does not refer to the second coming, but to the reality of Christ visiting humanity and visiting his churches refers to the reality of judgment. The time of judgment on Israel is about to come. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And so Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Not even going to be a decade. Five years at most. Jesus will come in judgment against Israel. And he wants Christians in Philadelphia to hold on because it's going to be a bumpy ride. We were talking in Sunday school how that changes really throw us. All the, and particularly those changes which seem to turn our world upside down. Jesus says changes are coming. Judgment is coming. Hold on to what you have so that no one may take your crown. The crown refers to the salvation, the gift that Christ has given. We saw this in chapter 2, verse 10. I, I find it worth noting that there are two parts to this. That there is, in fact, this sense of Christ keeping his people. And at the same time, there is this command to hold on to what you have. Which it means we cannot be passive and say, well... It's up to God. God will keep me. I don't need to worry about it. No, we must hold on to what we have. At the same time, we can't hold on to what we have as though it's all up to us and forget that it is the grace of God. Christ will keep us and we are to hold on to what he has given us. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. 
this is so apropos for the people in Philadelphia. There was a custom unique in the city of Philadelphia that when a man had served the city well, when he had left behind a great record, either as a magistrate, as a public benefactor, as a priest, to honor him, the city would put up a pillar in one of the many temples in the city of Philadelphia and they would inscribe his name on it. In other words, this is a memorial to this person. He served us well. They would set up a pillar for him in the temple. Here Jesus uses the language of Philadelphia to promise that the one who believes, as we've seen, the one who overcomes is one who believes, will never be separated from the love of God. It will be as though he were a pillar in the temple of God himself, never to be taken out. But I think there's also an additional reference to Solomon's temple. Because we read that when Solomon built a temple, outside the temple, outside where the holy place was, there were two pillars. Uh, one was called Jacob, he shall establish. The other one was called Boaz, in him is strength. And it is as though Jesus is saying, you will be like one of those pillars in the temple of my God. And the promise is given, never again will he leave it. He will be eternally kept by Christ. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming out of heaven from my God. See, unlike what happened in the city of Philadelphia, where they would etch the person's name on the pillar. This is to honor so and so who served us well. God puts his name on that person. The name of God is put on that person and the name of the city of God. We read, by the way, in Revelation 22, the last chapter, of heaven. That when we are in heaven, we read, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. This isn't literal, but it speaks to the fact that we will belong to God. But what about the new Jerusalem? What is this about a new Jerusalem? At the time that John writes this, the old Jerusalem is still there. It has not yet been destroyed. But it soon will be. The hour of trial is almost here. But they need not worry because there will be a new Jerusalem which is coming from the presence of God. And, and what is this new Jerusalem? Well, listen to what the writer of the Hebrew says. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. We are the new Jerusalem. We are the people of God. And then Jesus says, and I will also write on him my new name. And what could this new name of Jesus mean? I think it refers to the new duties that Jesus has. You see, as a result of his obedience here on earth, his death, burial, his resurrection, he has now ascended into heaven and now he intercedes for us. See, prior to the coming of Jesus into the world, he did not intercede for his people. Now he intercedes for us. He has a new title, a new name. He is the intercessor. And he is now our high priest. We are now his people. And once again we hear the words, He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
I think that the promises of God are indeed wonderful, but less so if we think we can really do things on our own. I think it is only when we identify with the church in Philadelphia that we say, oh yes, I have little strength, small strength. Then we can appreciate, then we can rejoice in God's gracious work in our lives. But if we think we're fine, we're okay for the most part, there's a little bump in the road there, and maybe we need God's grace to help us there, then these promises, I think, really are almost meaningless. But when we recognize that not for one moment of one day can we sustain ourselves, then to hear Christ say, I will keep you. You will be a pillar. I will write my God's name on you. I will write my name on you. Then it means something, something very powerful. What do you fear? If I were to sit down with you and talk about the things that you fear, what do you fear most? I think for each of us it may be different. Let me ask you a second question. What should you fear? See, I think it's natural to be afraid of suffering, to be afraid even of death, to be afraid of losing family, possessions. I think it's natural to be fear of the danger that we feel around us in the city. But what should we fear? What should be our greatest fear? I think the reality that we might leave the faith. And I'm not saying this that somehow we should all leave here trembling. Oh no, I might leave the faith. I might not be a Christian anymore. No, because we have the promises of Christ. Since Christ has said he would keep us, I think then those other things should melt away. And we should look to Christ as the one the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key, who opens the door and nobody can shut it. He's the one who takes us through the door into the kingdom of heaven. And he will keep us. Let's pray together. Father, it is hard for us to imagine persecution. It's hard for us to imagine suffering for the faith, even though we know many of our brothers and sisters have, and many are even today, as we speak. So we don't like the idea of suffering, and somehow we want to tweak your promises a bit, that somehow they mean we won't suffer. But we know this, this isn't what you intend. Instead, the wonderful, gracious promises that you send, that you give us, are that you will keep us by your grace. We are not to be passive and say, well, it's all in God's hands. But because you have opened the door, we are to walk through. We are to hold on to what you have given us and not take it for granted, not lose it through carelessness. Help us to see how weak we truly are. 
And then may we, by your grace, look to your grace, look to you, to sustain us every moment of every day. We thank you for the church in Philadelphia, for the example they are for us. And may we hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now we ask that you would go with us as we leave this place. We go our separate ways. May your grace and your spirit go with us. May we be lights in a world of darkness. And may you keep us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please and we'll sing the doxology together. benediction is the Levitical benediction and perhaps in light of what we've studied today it will have special significance the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace Amen